This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Fidelity Investments, who is committed to helping advance the financial mobility of young people. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of the Washington Post Early 202 newsletter. Our- author of that and anchor of Washington Post Live. Today, I'm joined by Representative Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts. Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. We are talking about such an important issue, um, one that has also been in the news on on and off since uh, Biden was elected, and um, about student loans. This is something that you've been completely outspoken about. Why? Yeah, well, It's a $2 trillion crisis, and it is really choking at the promise of our country. Uh, This debt is burdensome. We have an entire generation uh, that cannot start a business, purchase a home, grow a family. Uh, It's not just a millennial or Gen Z issue. Uh, I've had constituents uh, 76 years old uh, who have cried in my arms that they fear that they will die uh, still owing on these loans. They are on fixed incomes. They've had their benefits garnished because they've defaulted on loans. And at this point, they owe more than they originally took out. It's a gender justice issue. Uh, Two-thirds of this $2 trillion uh, debt is on the shoulders of women. And it's also a racial uh, justice issue. Uh, This is the final day of Black History Month. And um, black Americans have been locked out of every major federal relief program in this country. Uh, the Homestead Act, the GI Bill, uh, targeted by redlining. And that has um, impacted our family's ability to build generational wealth. So although there have been gains in income, um, we still don't have generational wealth. So black borrowers uh, borrow and default at higher rates. And so that's why I took this issue on. And um, I have to say it is a testament to the power of movements, because when student debt cancellation was first introduced as a policy, uh, many people questioned whether or not the president had the authority to do anything about it. Uh, Some uh, argued that it would be regressive in impact and only benefit white graduate students who went to affluent uh, institutions. And I worked uh, with Senator Warren, Senator Schumer, borrowers, civil rights organizations. This was the number one issue for the NAACP. Uh, tradesmen and women, union presidents, and over the course of two years, we proved um, that this is a deeply consequential issue, and we showed uh, the diverse um, face of this crisis. And ultimately, we were able to get President Biden uh, after a lot of pressure, and that's been my experience as someone who's been in government a long time. I've been in Congress five years, but uh, I served on the city council for eight in Boston, first black woman elected there, represented the whole city. And uh, prior to that, it was an aide in the Senate uh, for Senator John Kerry for 11 years, and also worked uh, for a congressman for four. And it's been my experience that more often than not, government does not lead, it responds. And President Biden did respond uh, to the strength of this diverse coalition and movement. And he he did uh, use the power of the pen and advance an executive action that would have brought relief to 43 million borrowers so, so the Supreme Court um, blocked him from doing that. So now it has been more incremental steps. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one recently where another 150,000 people um, received some student debt relief. Is, there, is he pushing the bounds enough 
to provide relief for borrowers, or is there more that he could do? Well, it's both and. Mm -hmm. uh, when uh, the Supreme Court, uh, which has been their track record of late, obstructed the will of the majority of the people, um, President Biden and Secretary Cardona gave me and this coalition their word that they would make good on their promise. Uh, and so in that time, uh, there has been targeted relief through uh, the income-driven repayment program like SAVE, um, through the public service loan forgiveness uh, program uh, that has uh, resulted in targeted relief to um, the tune of $130 billion. So 4 million borrowers have felt that impact. Mm -hmm. And that is certainly not anything to give short shrift to. But the reason why uh, I have uh, not taken my foot off the gas, so to speak, is because we still need broad-based, inclusive, more inclusive. We have to cast a bigger net so that we are leaving no one behind. Because as many borrowers that do approach me mm -hmm. and talk about how game-changing uh, this this relief has been for them, for those who have been able to been who've been eligible for the targeted relief, there are many more uh, who have not. So you mentioned in your first answer about uh, it's a gender and racial issue as well. Um, in the numbers of people who have sought, who's, um, gained relief, are you seeing that it is benefiting certain groups of people over others? And is there, are there groups who have really fallen through the cracks? Well, I mean, again, my, my data points are really anecdotal at this point. Okay. Mm -hmm. I do hope to, I, I love data, so uh, I do hope to uh, see some data in the disaggregate. Um, but I would say more of the borrowers uh, who have approached me are public service people, so more mature borrowers. Um, and we need, again, a, a wider net uh, so that more people are feeling the impact of this, this broad uh, relief and cancellation. You know, including uh, our younger uh, borrowers who are just coming out of school saddled with this debt. Yeah, there's, um, from what I understand, there is effort right now to reach the most vulnerable borrowers. Um, is there anything that you can say about that? Or have the most vulnerable um, been able to access the relief in levels that they should? Well, again, I just continue to advocate uh, what I've been focused on while we're in this. So in addition to the targeted relief of $130 billion for 4 million Americans, um, and then uh, last week an additional $20 million through the SAVE program, um, we're also in the midst of a negotiated rulemaking process. So I've been very focused on oversight of that process and have testified before the Department of Education to advocate for us to be as, as broad and as deep as the hurt is to ensure that we, we are reaching our most vulnerable uh, borrowers. So, um, you know, I, actually I'm, I'm, I'm a sort of three, three paths here. So mm -hmm. it's making sure uh, all of my constituents who are eligible for this targeted relief know that, and then providing them with navigators and people to make sure that they access that. Uh, secondly, it's continuing to fight for that broad-based relief because again, the executive action would have benefited 43 million borrowers, okay? Um, and then, you know, finally, we have to address the broader issues around unaffordability of higher education. Um, you cannot say that we live in a meritocracy and education is the great equalizer. You continue to put it farther and farther out of reach for people. Um, so uh, I, I am a, an advocate for a tuition-free um, 
college. I also, uh, in the meantime, do believe we need to expand Pell Grants, um, invest in our HBCUs. So uh, mm-hmm. all of those all of those things are essential. And I should add, um, I am uh, the profile of black borrowers. Uh, I was raised in a single uh, parented household, um, limited means. Uh, I took out a lot of loans. I defaulted on those loans. I did ultimately pay those loans back, but it took me over 20 years. Uh, and that was while I was working uh, for a congressman. I was waiting tables and working multiple jobs. Um, and I was barely touching the uh, principal. Uh, I was just sort of tinkering at the interest for a very, very long time. That affected my credit score, which affected a lot of other um, avenues of my life. Um, Republicans or opponents of canceling student debt uh, will say that it's not fair that there's other people who didn't go to college. Why do they have to pay through their taxes for this cancellation? What is your response to that? I knew that's where you were going, which is why I wanted to make the point that uh, I am someone who I am one of those people. Um, And I don't think it's unfair. We should want better uh, for the next generation. And it's also not uh, an apples to apples comparison. It's not even apples to oranges comparison. Uh, The cost of higher education is is increased. I don't know, but like 400 percent. So. I do think we should want more for the next generation. I certainly want more for my for my 15 year old daughter, uh, and I don't want folks, uh, you know, in a situation where they're burdened by this debt. Yeah, um, freeing up money that was pay- going to paying off student loans has um, obviously people can spend that money elsewhere. There's also a separate crisis in this country regarding housing, especially for young people. Um, I want to ask you about that specifically. Are you seeing that this is an issue that is increasingly becoming problematic for your constituents? And how does that play into the broader economy and, and issues like student loan debt when people are paying so much for so long to pay it off? Thank you for that question. And um, I should have actually led with that argument Mm. um, because it does benefit everyone. Ultimately, it benefits our economy. For example, during the pandemic, myself and and some of my other uh, colleagues advocated uh, fiercely for a payment pause on student loans during the pandemic. Uh, given the collective hardship that everyone was uh, experiencing. And uh, three times we were able to um, have a pause on those student loan payments. And people uh, were able to use that money that they saved to remain safely housed. Some people became first-time homeowners. Uh, So it was deeply uh, impactful. Uh, I should also add, just as an aside, our historically black colleges and universities, which have um, historically been woefully underfunded, they use the American Rescue Plan funds, uh, many of them, uh, to cancel student debt. So again, it, it is a economic justice issue, it's a gender justice issue, it's a racial justice issue, uh, and ultimately we do all stand uh, to, uh, to benefit because of that infusion in the economy. Uh, as for housing, I do serve on the Financial Services Committee, uh, and so housing is, is under the jurisdiction of that committee. And, um, you know, I'm going to be partisan for a moment. When the Democrats had the gavel and Congresswoman Maxine Waters was the chair, we had 55 hearings on housing. Um, Under uh, a Republican chair, uh, we have had one hearing on housing in the 118th Congress, one. 
And uh, I did a teletown hall with about 2,500 of my constituents. And housing was the first, second, third question. Uh, of course, I want more people to have homeownership within reach, uh, which is why I introduced the Down Payment Towards Equity uh, Act. Um, but truthfully, even just paying rent is out of reach for many people. You're not supposed to pay more than 30% of your income on rent. And there are many people paying uh, you know, 60, 80% of their income uh, towards rent. So there is a housing crisis in this country. And um, it's also why I think it's so important that Democrats uh, get the gavel back because uh, in our original Build Back Better uh, proposal, there was $150 billion uh, in housing. So we, we need more supply. Um, going back to debt and Congress, since you mentioned Congress, is there anything that Congress can do regarding student loan debt? Well, I mean, I, I, I really uh, seek to be on this issue, uh, exhaustive, because I do believe that borrowers are exhausted. Um, and so whatever uh, levers and tools are, are available, and I've certainly done that, from the power of my platform, to the power of convening, um, to pushing the president to use the power of the pen, mm -hmm. um, and certainly uh, not only uh, with executive action, but we, we do have the power of the pen legislatively, but given current dynamics, uh, it would not be, it would be very challenging to advance a bill uh, legislatively. So that's why I think we need to remain focused on this negotiated rulemaking process, which is seeking to use a different mechanism with which to um, implement broad-based student debt relief. Mm -hmm. I also want to say, I don't know if anyone's picking up on this, I don't say forgiveness. Um, you know, I, I'm very precise about language. Um, I don't believe that borrowers need to be forgiven anything. They've done nothing wrong. Again, you can't say we're in a meritocracy. Education is the equalizer and continue to put that farther and farther out of reach for people. Hmm. So that is why I'm, I'm very uh, precise in saying uh, relief, relief or cancellation. Interesting. You're a member of financial services, which you just mentioned. Um, uh, one thing that's been important to you is uh, the the diversity um the racial equity commitments i should say of the five biggest banks is there any update on that since uh you since this was pushed on these this was proposed for these banks 20 year, or in 2020 yeah so just to provide some context at the height of the black lives matter movement um in the uh, immediate aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, uh, there were many racial equity pledges that were made by institutions, by corporations, and by financial institutions. Um, now that uh, hashtags are no longer trending and headlines have faded, um, I wanted to ask for the receipts. And because I serve on the Financial Services Committee, I can do that uh, oversight. And so um, I wrote letters to the five biggest banks who had made uh, commitments in excess of some $32.5 billion when we did the calculations. And I said, I want the receipts because I certainly have not felt the impact of a $32.5 billion investment. So we asked for a comprehensive audit and gave a, a timeline uh, to um, submit that. They all complied. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
we combed through over a number of months some 200 plus pages uh, of data on our own, my team working uh, tirelessly um, to analyze and disaggregate. And what we learned is that there had been increases in, in housing opportunities, again, which I care about a great deal about because the racial wealth gap in this country is $10 trillion, $10 trillion. Uh, that, is, that is a problem for everyone. Uh, and uh, so I was encouraged by, by some of the investments externally, but I wanna see more, and I wanna see uh, more changes internally as well. Uh, things like canceling uh, overdraft, you know, eliminating overdraft fees, um, increasing language access, um, greater diversity in, in, in leadership positions. And another issue that's very important, I represent the Massachusetts 7th Congressional District, which includes the city of Boston. Uh, the city of Boston, about 10% of my constituents are unbanked and about 20% are underbanked. And Bank of America, for example, has closed 250 branches uh, throughout the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And in my district alone, about um, uh, 39. And, and that, is, that is very uh, consequential yeah. uh, to our small businesses, um, to, um, to my constituents. And so these are the things that I will continue to, to push for and to hold them accountable. Um. We're almost out of time, so I want to ask you about President Biden, and we are in an election year. Uh, Michigan just had its primary. Just a, He received about 80% of the vote. There was a large uncommitted from a very diverse background or group of voters, including Arab Americans. Um, are you, does Biden need to do more to ensure that the coalition that elected him in 2020 will stand with him in 2024? Well, if you look at issues, I, I, I chair the Abortion Rights and Access Task Force for the Pro-Choice Caucus. So if you look at issues um, like affirming abortion as a bodily autonomy, freedom and health care, um, issues like that and student debt cancellation are motivators uh, to the polls. So I don't want to uh, in any way underestimate the, that those are politically impactful uh, issues and do motivate people. But I'm more focused on the substance of those things. Um, but ultimately, um, the vote in Michigan, I think, is uh, evidence of that there are many people that are unhappy um, with the current uh, position that the president uh, has taken mm -hmm. and that uh, they want him to reverse uh, course, to change course quickly. Uh, I've long been advocating for a permanent ceasefire. Uh, I think that is how we will have hostages returned. It's how we can uh, deliver humanitarian aid. And I think it is uh, something that gets us much closer to just and lasting peace in the region. Uh, right now, there have been 1,200 Israeli lives lost, and we unequivocally condemn that, those heinous acts by Hamas. And there have been 30,000 Palestinian lives lost, um, most of them children. And now uh, Rafah, the last safe zone, uh, they want to bomb that. I'm just of the belief that history has already proven to us that we cannot bomb our way to peace. Um, I do not believe that vengeance is a foreign policy doctrine. Um, and so uh, this is what I, I think the president should be calling for, a permanent ceasefire. And I'm not alone in that. There's 60 plus members of Congress, yeah. the UN, the president of France, millions who've mobilized in the streets. Um, very quickly, last question. Uh, it Speaker Mike Johnson has not brought this on to the floor, but there could eventually be a vote on 
uh, Ukraine, perhaps more aid for Israel, especially that Israel aid. There's a lot of Democrats who are very concerned about giving more money to Israel uh, to continue to to continue this war. Where do you stand on that? Well, it it is essential that we get humanitarian aid to Ukraine. Um, on, on Israel, again, uh, $30,000, 30,000 uh, lives, um, innocent civilians uh, in Palestine, uh, we should not be sending uh, un unconditioned um, aid uh, to, to Israel. I don't have anything in front of me right now, so, you know, I, I, would have to, I would have to look at that. But we do need to get that humanitarian aid uh, into Ukraine. Um, but again, given uh, what is currently happen, happening, um, it's devastating. Uh, we should not be uh, sending more money uh, to Israel, certainly not unconditioned aid. Congresswoman, we are out of time. Thank you so much for this wonderful discussion today. All right, thank you. And stay with us. The program will continue in just a few moments. Good morning. I'm Ava Patrai, the economics reporter here at The Post. And I'm joined today by two economists who are going to help us dig into the mounting financial challenges that are facing young people. Misty Hagenis is an associate professor of public affairs and economics at the University of Kansas. And Julia Pollock is the chief economist at ZipRecruiter. Misty and Julia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Let's get started. Uh, Julia, I'll start with you. So the labor market keeps surprising us with its very strong job growth, but we're also starting to see layoffs inching up. How worrisome is this for young people, especially if they're just getting started in the job market? Well, young people are very worried. We just did a survey of job seekers that found that they overestimate their chance of being laid off in the next six months about fourfold. Uh, so clearly they are uh, nervous and, and their financial anxiety has gone up too. That said, the labor market does remain resilient and hopefully it'll remain that way. Uh, and I think if monetary policy is played right, uh, we, we could keep this alive and keep unemployment below 4% uh, even longer, at which point really magical things happen in the labor market and you see uh, earnings gaps between men and women, between uh, races narrow and close and you see lots of opportunities for young people. Perfect. Misty, one of the biggest challenges for young people is the high cost of living. The Post reported that one third of young adults are living with their parents to ease financial burdens. How are these types of trade-offs changing the way that Gen Z thinks about success down the line? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I'll just start by reminding us all that, you know, we are almost four years out from the start of the pandemic. And I think when the pandemic hit, a lot of us kind of jiggered around in where we were living. And there was a lot of young people who moved back home and were staying with their parents. Um, and so, you know, I, I think to the extent that, um, you know, living intergenerationally helps um, younger generations um, build and accumulate a little bit more um, wealth and savings, it's a good thing. Um, to, you know, to the extent that it is done not out of choice, but because of a restriction and, a, and an inability to, um, you know, live independently and pay rent and have a job that allows them to thrive independently, it's an issue. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's something, for me, it's something that we need to monitor. Um, I'm very sensitive to the fact that we've all discovered that there are different ways to live mm -hmm. um, through, you know, being 
experiencing um, a communal <laughs> global pandemic. And so, you know, we'll see what happens as we move forward. Um, you know, but I do, I do think that um, it is something that we need to keep our finger on. Perfect. Julia, um, I want to talk a bit about high interest rates. And as we know, it's making it harder for everybody, including young people, to budget and plan ahead, plan for the future. What are some ways that young people can address these issues? Well, the number one determinant of wealth for most Americans outside of the 1% is labor market income. Mm -hmm. And study after study shows that uh, that first job you take is really, really crucial for the trajectory of your earnings. And so I would encourage young people to start their job search in school uh, to look very carefully at what jobs are out there, what they require, what skills they require, plan their education accordingly, uh, and keep a foot in the labor market uh, throughout school. Uh, it's really, really important to get apprenticeships and internships. They, too, are transformative for many young people and set them up for much, much better, higher-paying jobs. Misty, Gen Z is at a point where they're thinking about financial independence and what that looks like long term. How, how does thinking about starting a family, buying a house, settling down fit into that? And is it different from, it has, from how it has been for past generations? Yeah, um, so I think it's definitely different. You know, there's a lot of um, changes generation to generation in terms of our expectations of ourselves, our expectations of of you know our communities of our partners and so i think what we're seeing now with this younger generation is you know if you look at the data um, a lot more um, we've got a lot more younger folks who have higher levels of education you know it's almost about 50 percent now if you look at, at um, individuals between the ages of 25 and 29 have a bachelor's degree. Um, that is you know, double the amount of individuals who had a bachelor's degree of their parents. Um, so there's a lot going on right now in terms of shifting um, economics that's driven by educational attainment and job opportunities. And you know, one of the things that happens is when we get more education, um, everything around us becomes um, we look at it differently. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of families, starting families, partnering up, you know, the cost, you know, because we live in a society that um, really has not um, had a lot of strong social supports for childcare and other things, mm -hmm. um, women are looking at this today and they're really thinking about the cost, the individual cost to them of starting a family. Um, of having children. And so I think it is very different today, um, partly you know, due to um, this increase in education and, and opportunities that people have. What is the result of that? What are we seeing and what do you expect to see in terms of family formation and things like that? Yeah, so I mean, one thing I will say is that there is, you know, again, kind of following off of the pandemic, there has been a lot of talk around, uh, you know, paternity, paid paternity leave, um, uh, child care policies that would support. And so uh, that's new mm -hmm. uh, in a sense. It, it's a little bit cyclical because I feel like as a country, every like 40 to 50 years, we try to do this thing with education and then we never really get there. Um, but, um, you know, so we are seeing a lot more discussions in that space. Um, and and I, I think in terms of for the younger generation, really what it means is that, um, you know, we need to younger generation or younger folks need to be a lot more aware and cognizant in making in making their decisions and in talking with their partners mm -hmm. and in talking about these issues in their place of employment. Um, what another shift that I've been seeing is that there are a lot more supervisors, again, 
partly because of the pandemic shakeup, who are willing to have these conversations around leave, around flexibility for work. And so some of the issues that have been holding the younger generation back, I feel, are there is movement in the discussions about how we can make the environment better, safer, and uh, more prosperous for them. Julia, fast forwarding a, <clears throat> a few decades here to retirement, um, an Intuit survey recently found that two thirds of Gen Z is unsure that they'll ever be able to afford retirement. What's driving that bleak outlook and how, how can we address that? So recent surveys asked young people, how are you going to pay for your student loans when they go back into effect? And uh, you know, one in four said I won't be able to contribute to my retirement savings account anymore. And companies heard that, and Congress also heard that. So you had Avid Laboratories spearhead a new benefit, the 401k match for student loan pay repayments, and ask the IRS to allow them to count student loan repayments towards uh, 401k matches. They got that through, and Congress then encoded that in law for everybody starting on January 1st. And what we're seeing is a rush of companies now to offer this new benefit that is so helpful to young people, allowing them to repay their student loans and save for retirement at once. And so often when there are policy gaps, I think employers can take the lead, Congress can listen and do something, and then companies can rush to adopt. We're seeing Chipotle, Unilever, News Corporation, Dow Jones, all of these companies rush to adopt this new perk in just the last few weeks. So I think examples like that are very, very encouraging and show that we, we shouldn't just look at these hugely important social issues and crises and, and sit back and be resigned. Um, uh, we, we can really do something about it, workers and employers together, and reach win-wins. Misty, I want to talk a bit about the gender pay gap. How does that affect the way <clears throat> excuse me, women are thinking about their financial futures? Yeah, um, so the gender pay gap is a really important issue. It's been stubbornly stuck um, for a handful of years slash decades now. Um, and what we know about the gender wage gap today is that you know, a lot of it is really being driven today by um, family issues and having in childbirth and having children. And so if you look at younger generations, um, there's really no gender wage gap or it's very minimal. But the moment that um, a woman has a child, you see a dip in her earnings, um, the year that she has the child, and then all the subsequent years and basically it never recovers. And so it's about two-thirds of the gender wage gap today that is attributable to um, having children for women. So, you know, thinking about that in the context of, you know, the gender wage gap used to be larger. Um, it used to be more driven by things outside of our home, like um, overt sexism in the workplace, um, you know, people, um, you know, siphoning off into different types of occupations where types of occupations that had higher pay were generally filled with men. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we still have some of those issues in the labor market, and it's still, um, you know, something that's a challenge for us. But in terms of thinking about what can we do, given the fact that the gender wage gap has really been stuck, what can we do today to really have a, a larger, greater impact on, on reducing or mitigating the gender wage gap? And there's kind of two things. One is, again, emphasizing and focusing on what are some strategic ways that businesses, government, you know, local, state, federal, 
can work towards creating policies and infrastructure that invest in their employees um, around the issue of family um, paid leave and childcare. The second is, and I hate to say this, but like, or maybe I don't, um, but when we're thinking about um, the next phase kind of a feminism today, it's really not, it's no longer about women speaking their voices and sticking up for themselves. It is about women bringing men to the table, and especially within our homes, and having discussions about uh, you know, the, un the additional burden of um, chores and domestic tasks that women take on in our homes. You know, 75% of mothers today uh, work in the labor market, but they still pr do predominantly a majority of the tasks at home, and that's very exhausting, um, and it's contributing to the gender wage gap. So. Julia, there's a lot of talk about how AI could change the jobs of the future. How should young people be thinking about what kinds of skills they should be working on for maximum job security down the line? This is the, the huge question of the moment. And I think the preliminary research coming out uh, points in, in lots of different directions. So for me, the most exciting finding is that AI tools, access to AI tools, raises productivity substantially. But in some fields, like customer support, uh, it, it raises productivity for the lowest skilled, youngest, novice employees the most, and actually reduces uh, performance gaps between the best and, and worst employees. And that suggests that perhaps employers can fill jobs where they're struggling to hire with younger workers, with less educated workers, um, uh, giving them more opportunities. So it's not necessarily clear that AI is going to replace uh, many jobs. In professional services, it does appear that in some areas, like in, in creative industries, uh, that, that those entry-level jobs could be threatened. I, we've heard from CEOs in companies that make podcasts and webcasts and films, uh, that they can make all the creative assets now, all the visual assets with AI, that they can have an actor just record one page and then uh, have AI mimic the rest. So there definitely will be some serious job impacts. Uh, I'd encourage young people to uh, become very, very familiar with AI and all the things that it can do, um, even if they don't have you know, technical AI skills, just knowing how it can be used in their products and industries, I think will give them a competitive advantage. Julia, we also have a question from the audience. Someone in Maryland writes in to ask, it seems like young people today are no longer interested in the way the current workforce is structured. Based on that assumption, what can we do to engage them? How can we restructure the workforce? Right, when we talk to employers, a common complaint is young people don't want to work today. It's not true. Statistically, we see that young people are working in very high numbers and you know, higher numbers than, the, than in the past. Alba just had an article today about how youth, on, youth employment is uh, the highest it has been in years. That said, you know, young people are valuing work uh, life balance much more than previous generations. Uh, enrollment is declining in fields that are associated with crazy hours, with being in the office till midnight. Uh, accounting, for example, is facing a reckoning uh, with lots of workers retiring, but fewer and fewer enrolling in accounting programs. And so what are companies having to do? Well, they're having to give their industries a, a facelift, a makeover. They're having to modernize their jobs. They're having to take on a bit more of the risk uh, of, of um, seasonal uh, workflows by 
hiring more people so that the business rush around Christmas time and around tax season isn't so crazy and doesn't require people to be working 24-7. Uh, so that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of uh, soul-searching happening in many, many companies where employers are struggling to recruit young people, and they're actually making some tough decisions and costly decisions to improve jobs so that they can go out and recruit and retain the best workers. Great. Misty, we're going to talk about Taylor Swift. Um, you have cre- you've created a curriculum you call Swiftynomics 101 to teach high school and college students about the economy through the lens of Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that approach. How did you come up with it? Why is it important? Um, and why is it a valuable way to examine the economy? Yeah. I'm so glad you asked me about Taylor Swift. <laughs> Uh, so I'm in the process of writing a book, which will be out in 2025, called Swiftynomics. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of my colleagues know that I'm writing this book. And so one of, the, one of my colleagues asked me, oh, would you be interested in putting together a, a seminar, a webinar, to teach high school students, to, or sorry, to help high school teachers teach their students about economics using Taylor Swift? And I've been um, writing some short stories about examples where, you know, the Taylor Swift NFL um, scenario um, <laughs> Even if you look at it through the lens of economics, you can um, surprisingly see how the NFL as a business model was super dedicated to supporting Taylor Swift, mostly because she was huge for their bottom line. Um, and so, you know, economics in and of itself is often not an exciting concept for the general public. Um, for us economists, it's like the most exciting thing in the world, but for others, it's not so much. And um, it also tends to be very traditional and very kind of um, bland in how we teach it. And so this just seemed like a super fun opportunity um, to get high school students and, you know, first year college students really engaged in understanding the concepts of of economics, the theories of economics, using something that is so tangentially real to them in this moment. Um, and, and I really do, you know, as, so I'm a professor and really like as, you know, when I think about how can I engage my students in the content of my classes, um, you know, one of the most effective ways that you can do that is to try to cross the barrier of um, the content that you're trying to teach them and the, the topics that they care about. What has the reaction been like from students? Um, so I, so I, I can tell you what the reaction has been from teachers, uh-huh. um, but I haven't um, heard yet from teachers in terms of, um, you know, how their students took in the content. But um, the, the reaction from teachers has been great. I mean, I've been getting a lot of feedback saying thank you. Um, I had a lot of fun creating the curriculum, so I made these videos. I made a video that my 13-year-old son said, that is terrible. And so then I, I challenged him and I said, then you make a better one. So he made a video. So I've got both the videos on my website. Um, and, and it's just, you know, it's really a fun um, kind of anything that gets the younger generation interested and excited about economics, I think is very cool. And I think especially when you can do it on, on, uh, with a gender lens as well, um, I think that that's great because it gets more young women and more girls interested in, in the field. I wish I'd had your curriculum when I was teaching economics. My <laughs> students would have been grateful rather than you know endless supply and demand graphs. <laughs> All right, unfortunately we are out of time, but Misty and Julia, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. And stay with us, we'll be back with more shortly. The following segment was produced and paid for by Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. 
Great, good morning, welcome. Thank you all for joining us both here in person and online. My name is Lana Wong and I'm a founding member of the Diverse Women Moderators Bureau, Moderate the Panel. So I decided to wear red today because in Chinese culture, red represents good fortune, good luck and joy. And so we could all use a little bit of joy, right? And uh, I also wanted to kick this off and wish everyone a happy year of the dragon. So I don't know if we have any dragons out there, but, um, oh, it's your year. But uh. theoretically, it's supposed to be all of our years. The year of the dragon is supposed to be quite an auspicious and prosperous year. And that's a good thing. And especially because we are talking today about financial mobility for the next generation. So, you know, in these turbulent times, how can we arm our young people with the knowledge, skills, and discipline to really achieve their financial goals and ultimately their life goals? I mean, that's the million dollar question, Absolutely. right? So luckily, we have a great expert here on hand to shed some light on this. Let me please introduce Sangeeta Morjani. She is the head of tax exempt markets and retirement solutions at Fidelity Investments. And she and her team have been dedicated to helping young people plan for their financial futures from K through 12 to college and also with a variety of new digital tools to really help young people and meet them where they are. So welcome, Sangeeta. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. And I have to tell you, happy uh, Year of the Dragon. I have a dragon at home. So happy Year of the Dragon to him and to everyone here. <laughs> Fantastic. And so before we get started, let's just take a quick poll. How many of you all have teenagers or young adult children at home? Okay, a fair amount. And then of those with the hands up, have you all started any financial planning for the future conversations with your young ones at home? Oh, we'd love to see all the hands up, won't we? <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, I myself am the mother of two Gen Z sons, and I will say that those two are more adept with financial investing uh, apps than I am. So I could stand to learn a lot from this conversation. So let's dig in. Um, Sangeeta, what does financial mobility mean to you, and why is it so important for the next generation? Um, I am really excited, Lana, that we're starting with the topic of financial mobility because it is, it is foundational for the next generation to achieve the American dream. And I have two uh, Gen Zs at home, too, and it is so critical because it is about uh, climbing the economic ladder. It is about economic independence. And so when we talk about financial mobility, it's not just about making money. It's just as important to have the education and the financial services tools to be able to make good with the money you have. So the question in front of us when we're thinking about financial mobility is, do people have the right skills? Do they have the right education so they can truly prosper and achieve their goals in life? Great. Okay. And so with this younger generation, what trends are you seeing and how are they different from their older counterparts? Um, you know, I have to say uh, the trends we're seeing are really promising, which is which is so wonderful. Uh, some of the trends we're seeing is that younger uh, teens actually are more likely to have conversations with their parents. So 50 percent of today's teens say in one of our fidelity studies that they've had conversations with their parents about finances. Awesome. <clears throat> Those that are college bound are thinking about their financial future. What we also see is Gen Z 
is way more uh, ready to put money away towards retirement than the prior generations. In fact, we've seen a 63% increase in retirement accounts with Gen Zs. So really promising trends and all goodness. Uh, one thing that's sticky uh, is the gender gap. And you know, this is where, like I said, I'd like to see all hands raised because the gender gap starts very early, mm. right? Parents are more likely to talk to their boys about finances and money than about their daughters. And I think that's something that we as a community have to do more on. But overall, promising trends. Great, yeah, no, absolutely. <clears throat> we heard about that gender gap um, in these previous conversations too. Yes. So it is something that is persistent. Um, so technology, how mm. is Fidelity leveraging technology and innovation to really engage and empower young people? I mean, uh, technology and innovation. Innovation is like in the fabric of Fidelity. Um, but when we are thinking about technology and innovation, it's really important that we have anchored ourselves in making sure that people are able to engage and it's fun and rewarding because until it's that, it's yet another thing, right? And so there are two things I'd like to talk about. First, how are we making things engaging and fun? So we're starting really early and uh, we've got a program, Fidelity has a program called Fidelity Learning Labs where we're providing education to teachers so they can then take personal finance in their classrooms, in the K-12 classrooms. Then we talk about high school and we've got a Fidelity Financial Forward where we're coming to high schools and getting high schoolers more comfortable with the topic of finance and money. And the other is, we don't stop there, we go with them in universities. So financial, <laughs> Fidelity Financial Forward University, where again, we're partnering with uh, universities and colleges so that financial literacy is a core component. So that's one, make it fun and rewarding. The second thing that's truly important is about people need to be able to engage. You know, you, you learn by doing. And so what we want to make sure is that we have enough to do there, enough to help people learn. We've got a youth app, which actually teenagers can engage in, not just saving money, but investing money. Um, student debt, we've talked about that a lot today. Uh, student debt can be crippling. It's very pervasive. And so having the right tools so people can understand how much debt do I have? How do I... How do I start paying off that debt? So that's another area uh, of innovation. And so we've really been focusing on that. And uh, lastly, I really want to talk about how important <coughs> it is that, <coughs> you okay? Uh, that we help the underserved. So we have a social impact uh, effort, a $250 million social impact effort to help the underserved. And by the way, I forgot one cool thing, which is we're in the metaverse. So Roblox, we've got, we've got presence there to talk about financial literacy. So it's about engaging people and allowing them the opportunity uh, to get involved. Fantastic, sounds like you have a great array of, sorry, it's, it's an allergy. Um, I'm sorry, I had about five cough drops before I came on stage, so it's clearly analogy. Um, sorry, uh, on to topic, you did mention higher education institutions. So yes. can you tell me more about these partnerships and how they can really um, perform for yeah. our young people? Yeah. So, you know, uh, partnership with higher education is 
critical. And uh, Fidelity serves a lot of higher education um, institutions for benefits with their workplace. So we're helping their employees. And what I'm really excited about is how we're taking that partnership to students. And, um, you know, this partnership got accelerated with uh, the with the name image likeness legislation passing in 2001, where universities came to us and said, can you help us bring this education to athletes? And we were like, absolutely. And as we started working more on it, it became really obvious that financial literacy in universities and colleges would not, was not just something athletes could benefit from, but everybody could. So what I'm so proud of is the partnership we have with one of the schools, which is University of Kentucky. They've actually been uh, a Fidelity client for over 30 years. And now we're extending that <coughs> where we have a program <coughs> for students, which is a combination of education, learning, and experimentation or, or getting engaged with your money. So how do I invest my money? How do I save my money? Even if I can't save a lot, every $10 and $5 matters. And I think that's what's so important as we think about financial literacy, financial mobility, is these partnerships and meeting the youth where they are. Absolutely. And so we are here in DC. We cannot have this conversation without touching on policy. That's right. What is the role of public policy in this whole financial mobility landscape? Uh, you know, Lana, I'd love to turn the question back to say, not just what is the role of public policy, but public policy is all encompassing. Public policy is critical. Uh, financial mobility is something that we as a community, as an industry, federal, state government policy need to really come together. Um, and, you know, when we come together, it's really powerful. In fact, we are benefiting from so many policy decisions uh, that have made us better in terms of enabling financial literacy. I'll, I'll share a few. Um, you know, one is around emergency savings. And Secure 2.0, which thank you to the policymakers for Secure 2.0, Secure 2.0 has a provision which allows employers to make contributions towards emergency savings. And that is huge uh, because, you know, often when student debt is, is something that, you know, students are, or uh, new workforce members are, are worrying about, they need a mechanism to have that emergency savings. So thank you for that. The, others, uh, the other is uh, specific to student debt with the CARES Act. Um, and what the CARES Act did is enable uh, tax credit for employers to make contributions towards student debt. Again, we've taken that and put tools around it, put solutions around it, and millions of people in the workforce are benefiting from that and being able to pay off the debt. Um, the other uh, one from Secure 2.0 is auto portability. And what that is, is, you know, um, changing jobs is happening a lot more today than when I joined the workforce. And, uh, you know, often those smaller 401k, 403b balances are forgotten. And we now have, through Secure 2.0, a mechanism for that money to travel with people when they go to their next job. And so they can continue to accumulate. So um, thank you, uh, I would say, to the policymakers for the partnership, because it's really critical here uh, that we come together 
uh, to advance financial literacy and enable financial mobility. Fantastic. Well, do you have any last uh, thoughts or tips for young people out there and as well as parents uh, for this whole financial mobility journey? I would say a couple of things. Uh, one, financial mobility is something we all need to engage in, whether you have kids or not, whether you're young or you're old, because it is about you know, the next generation's ability to climb the economic ladder. And I'm a big believer, people need to be able to live on their terms and they can't do that unless they have the financial mobility. Two, I think it's really important for us as a community, as industry, as policymakers to engage. And I'm so happy to be here in DC to be able to talk about that. Um, so let's, let's get on this together. And uh, I think the next generation uh, needs, uh, needs all of us to do this together. So thank you. Great. Well, thank you so much for all the work that you all are doing. And thank you for this conversation. Thank you all for joining us here in person and online. And if you have any ideas or tips uh, and you want to add to the conversation, please do so online with the hashtag post live. My name is Lana Wong, and I will now hand it back to our colleagues at The Washington Post. Thank you so much. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. I'm Akila Johnson, a reporter here at The Post. And before we get started, by show of hands, how many people in the room know what a backdoor Roth IRA is? Oh, wow. Well, uh, I have no clue. So <laughs> luckily, we're seated with an expert who was going to clue in those of us who didn't put our hands in the air so we can get some answers. Haley Sachs, welcome to The Washington Post. Thank you so much for having me. I can help with that. Okay, I was going to say, before we get started, do you want to go ahead and answer that question for me? Because I have no idea what a backdoor Roth IRA is. Well, a Roth IRA has an income limit to contribute to it, and a backdoor Roth IRA is a way to get around that income limit. So you're able to contribute to a Roth IRA even if you make above the threshold. Oh, above. Okay, so we're going to talk about wealth generation a little bit later for folks who were like, I don't even have a you know income limit to be worried about. Mm -hmm. So we'll get there. Um, so you've been referred to as Susie Orman meets Paris Hilton, and you call yourself Mrs. Dow Jones. But you've never worked in finance. What drew you to this work, and how do you use social media to educate people about financial literacy? Um, I think what drew me to this work was my own desire to learn about money and not finding resources out there that thrilled me and engaged me and made me feel like it was aspirational to grow wealth and budget and invest. Um, and I use social media because it's the best way to connect people, you know? You say aspirational. Is it also, do you think, can it be intimidating for folks who... Who, who don't have the, the, the literacy, the understanding, or maybe even the, back, the background to kind of understand that wealth is something that is attainable and can be grown? A hundred percent. I mean, I think that it's so intimidating to try and learn about money in the traditional way. It can feel really old school and like you're not smart enough to do it and there's a lot of jargon but when you actually break it down it's simple and it takes a lot of mindset and understanding but it's not something that you couldn't learn you just need the right teacher and that's where I come in when you say mindset talk to me a little bit about what you mean by the right mindset so people's money mindsets are fixed by the the time of seven years old 
So we pick up a lot from our parents. We pick up a lot from society, especially for women. We're not really conditioned the way that men are to do math, to think that we can invest, all of these things. And so when you get to later in life, in your 20s, when you realize, oh, 30s, whatever age you are, that you have that moment where you're like, I should probably start <laughs> thinking about my finances. You do have to, as a first step, think through what is my money mindset and what's holding me back from doing this and what are the fixed beliefs that I have that are holding me back? Fascinating. By seven. So this is something else I can blame my mother for yes, is what I'm hearing yes. you say. Awesome. Call her after. <laughs> When you're learning about money, your goal went beyond, so when you were learning about money, your goal went beyond just understanding how to balance a checkbook or negotiate a salary. You wanted to learn wealth creation, like we were just yes. saying. Why is it something that you think people, young people in particular, should strive for? Wealth creation? Yes. Well, I mean, first of all, financial freedom. You don't want to have to work forever. I, you know, we should all, we all deserve retirement, so that's a huge part of it. Um, I mean, there's so many reasons. It gives you security. It gives you freedom. You can leave bad relationships. You can leave bad jobs. Any situation that's not serving you, if you have financial freedom, you have the power to walk away. And so, yeah, it's retirement, but it's also giving yourself choice in your own life to do what's best for you. Do you think so, like kind of going back to mindset and for young people, do you think that sometimes wealth creation is seen as something that is maybe for other people or something that should we should only be worrying about kind of once we are true adults, so to speak? Oh, my gosh. I hear this all the time. It's always a problem for future you. Today, me, I can do whatever. I can buy whatever, spend. You know, it doesn't matter. Tomorrow, that's when I'll deal with it. So I think that's a very common belief. But they always say the best day to start investing was yesterday, and the second best day to start investing is today. So with compound interest, it's really important to get your money working for you as soon as possible and try to get around that belief. Got it. So for your young followers, uh, your young followers also ask you for basic money management tips. Mm -hmm. So what's the most common question that you tend to be asked when it comes to basic money management? I'd say the most common question is, how much can I spend on rent? That's very common for Zillennials. Um, and just understanding how to break down their paycheck after taxes so that they know how much can I spend in all of these areas? Because most people just eyeball it and it doesn't really work out. So they would like to have some structure. So you said after taxes, are people thinking um, before taxes? Are you having conversations about, you know, investing in 401ks with, with young people? Or is that a, a tomorrow conversation that people tend to, to think it's a tomorrow conversation, shall I say? Well, actually, that is a today conversation okay. for sure. If you are getting that 401k match at work, I mean, that's free money. So that's one of the first conversations that we have when I'm working with someone on their financial journey is, okay, is a 401k match offered at your workplace? If so, what do we have to move around here so that you can take advantage of that? Um, but I always say 401k match, then Roth IRA, then back to 401k. Okay. So it's not, not all in for the 401k up front. 
You gotta move around a little. Gotta move. Yeah, gotta be flexible <laughs> with your tax advantaged accounts. Yeah. That's really interesting because you said, you know, people are thinking about rent as kind of how much can I mm-hmm. spend my paycheck on rent. Yeah. So I guess I was asking because are the is that 401k retirement Roth even an option, or are people just thinking, how do I make rent? How do I pay utilities? And, and how do I just survive day to day? I mean, financial journeys are different for everyone, but I would say, yes, for a majority of people, they're living paycheck to paycheck. They have student loans. They have private loans. um, They don't have emergency funds, and they're just looking to get by. So the first step there is really to build a three to six month emergency fund and get it in a high yield savings account so that if anything happens in this age of layoffs and you know all this other job insecurity, you have a backup. So most people have no backup and it's really scary. So you've mentioned a few things here, a few words here that I think can be intimidating for some people. And it has to do with the jargon when it comes to. Oh, no, we can't be doing jargon. (laughs) Well, no, but I mean, let's let's, let's talk about it. Let's break it down. So, you know, I think that's a big hurdle when it comes to understanding financial literacy. So give me kind of an example or a scenario where you would go from Wall Street lingo to layman's terms. Like if I were to come to you, I full disclosure, I would be the layman who says, you know, I'm, I'm trying to build some wealth creation. Help me do that in a, in a, a approachable manner. Okay, so let's compare 401ks and Roth IRAs to Kim Kardashian and Kylie Jenner. Okay, I can do that. Okay, so Kim Kardashian, she was the first one on the scene. She's a little bit old school. And like a 401k, she got robbed. Well, not robbed, but eventually you're going to have to pay money to the government in a 401k because you're putting pre-tax dollars in. And when you take them out when you're 65 and a half or whatever, you're going to have to pay them back. So that's 401k. And then we got Roth IRAs, which are more like Kylie. They're new to the scene. They're a bit more modern. They're hip. And you're going to be putting in your pre-tax money instead. You're going to be putting in your post-tax money instead of um, your pre-tax money. And you have to keep it when you take it out during retirement. Is one preferable to the other? Is it like, does it matter if you're team Kylie or if you're team Kim? I think you can, you can be verse. Okay. You can like Kim and Kylie, but I would say, like I said, get that match first, then go buy your lip kits and then go back and get your skims. Got it. <laughs> Perfect. There's also a sentiment um, that millennials and Gen Z haven't received the America that was promised to them. Yes. They're often criticized mm-hmm. for not working as hard or having endured as much, you know, back in my day, um, as previous generations and aspire to live a soft life. Have You've shared how you felt disconnected from the advice and educational content that was available. So how do you bridge that gap? How do you how do you bridge the generational divide? Well, I mean, I think that the world that we like the American dream has really changed for Zillennials, right? We have higher student loans than ever before, increased prices of goods with inflation, and then of course the whole home ownership thing, which was a pillar of the American dream for our parents, is not really within reach the way that it was. And so with the changing tides and the world that we've inherited, the financial education needs to change too. It can't just be the same education that they had because it's a completely different economy and world that we've inherited. So. That's so interesting um, because as I was listening to the intro video, were you talking about debt and gaslighting? Yes. And so I feel like I've been gaslit then apparently. So I'm wondering if you could unpack that a little bit too in terms of what does that mean? 
To be about debt? Yes. Oh, okay, yes. I can help you. Um, so basically, there's a threshold for debt of it's 7% which is the interest rate that sort of determines should you be aggressive and pay it off or should you pay the minimum and put whatever money you were going to put into aggressively paying it off into the stock market instead. And because historically the stock market has returned around 8%, if your debt is 7% or lower, it makes sense to just pay the minimum and then put whatever extra that you have into the market and you'll actually end up on top. So it's about knowing sort of your delta. Like think about it like drops in the bucket. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, how big is your hole? Like, is it really big and all the water's coming out at once or is it just dripping a little bit and you're actually able to fill the bucket up despite having a little bit of a drip? Does that make sense? That makes so much sense. Okay, it's good. not what I was told in my home economics class. No, you're when not. We were, when we were talking about debt and balancing checkbooks back in the yeah. day. So that's fascinating. And old financial experts would like have a bell that you would ring like, I'm debt free. I'm debt free, baby. Like it was such a big thing. And it's like, no, debt is actually rich people are obsessed with debt. Like debt is a, leveraging debt is like how people become billionaires. So that is a very... Yeah, it's a, something that I was gaslit too. So when I learned that, I was like, damn, I got to spread this. <laughs> it's like why celebrities have mortgages. Oh. Like Jay-Z and Beyonce are worth billions of dollars. They've got mortgages because they got a low interest rate from Goldman Sachs on like a $60 million beach house. And they're flipping that money into probably, I don't know what their stock market, I hope. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be making like $600 million versus whatever, like the $100 million that they're paying in interest. So it's about the drops in the bucket. I like that. How big is coming out versus how much is coming in. I love that analogy. Yeah. So we have an audience question from Tom Dixon in Pennsylvania. Who hey, Tom. Hi, Tom. Who asks, what are three things that you think every millennial should embrace to secure their financial security? Oh, I love this. Um, I would say... First of all, your 401k match, because that's free money. It's the only time in your life that you're guaranteed a 100% return. So take advantage of that. I would say emergency fund in a high yield savings account for sure. Um, and then I would also say work on your mindset because we're in this age of social media and comparison and tap to pay and buy now, pay later. And it's so easy to just blow your whole paycheck. So having financial goals and being able to know your why makes it a lot easier to know why not. So it's interesting you said financial goals. So you know when you go to your banking app, sometimes it has like a little budget feature. Do you think that that helps set financial goals and it helps kind of give you a mindset? Or do you think you need like a pen and, you know, some people are pen and paper old school. What do you think is the best way to kind of map that out for people? I think... Um, I've always thought that budgeting apps don't really work. I have a budgeting tool that we use in my community called the Money Book, but what's, and I built it for myself first because I was like, how come none of these apps are working for me? I put it in and I make this strict budget and I tell myself that I'm going to just spend this much here and that much there. And it's like, it's too constrained. It's not realistic or organic to your life. 
Um, and so what's great about the money book is that it's much more flexible and it just gives you lump sums to use in each of those categories, um, which is great. But I think financial goals are really confusing because if you're just starting your financial journey, you're like, great, my financial goal is that I want to own a home in Italy. And it's like, yeah, okay, that is maybe your long-term financial goal, but actually we all have the same financial goals at first. And I always say it's like the little black dress of personal finance, they work for everyone. You don't need to be creative with your financial goals at first. Let's just get through these first three levels. Let's get that 401k match down and save that emergency fund. Then level two is let's pay off that high interest rate debt. And then level three is ta max out those tax advantaged accounts, that Roth, that 401k. If you have a health savings account, use it as an investment account. Those are your three levels. Once those are done, think about Italy. But let's just keep it Keep it within those three at the beginning. Keep it realistic, and then we can get aspirational yeah. for the house. And, and don't get overwhelmed that like you have to have all these, you know, just, it's pretty simple. It's Sometimes it's nice to just know what you're going to do. Absolutely. Haley, we are just about out of time, uh, and we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.